0: I'm Jacqueline and I'm Courtney and this is caffeinated crimes
1: welcome back and I here we go stuttering through another intro you know I'm just thinking about how when Courtney and I first started this podcast we would spend like I don't know like half an hour like okay what are we going to talk about like let's like really like think through you know and then now we're just like okay, and hit start, and I'll just see what comes out of my mouth, and I'm sure you can tell, because it's never great.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's always just like, what's up, y'all? It's life. Let's go. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Here we go. Just start rambling. I know some podcasts
1: will, like, they'll, like, start having a conversation, and they'll, like, start recording in the middle of the conversation, you know? Like, it, like, kind of comes in, and then they have, like, their intro music, but I don't know. I feel kind of lost. Like, I need to be there from, like, the beginning, you
0: know? I feel like, our conversations are never prolific enough that it would be, like, this is the best <laughs> conversation to enter. Because I feel like... Wait. Because <laughs> I feel like the ones that do that, like, get together in person, so it's, like, yeah. kind of different, too, maybe. Like, they're, like, catching up, but, like, we talk all the time, so it's, like, <laughs> we ain't got that much more interesting stuff to say. <laughs> Wait, so you're telling me that you don't find
1: our conversations just absolutely riveting? Because, I mean... <laughs> this is like the height of conversation. I mean, it is, but I don't think
0: anyone else would appreciate it. (laughs) They would be like, we don't know what you're talking about.
1: (laughs) Um, What I do hope everyone else will appreciate is my quick story of how my husband could have almost been on a true crime podcast. So last night, (laughs) like 1030 at night, I'm laying in bed and this car alarm starts going off outside. And so I'm like, fucking christ like somebody turn off their car alarm because it's gonna wake up my baby and so it's like probably like five minutes and then andrew texted me and he was like your car alarm was going off (laughs) i was like what i didn't even know my car had an alarm okay i was like i don't know what's happening um so then i have like a ring doorbell so i keep getting like ring notifications because andrew's like going in and out and then it goes off again like an hour later then it goes off at 2 a.m and then like 5 a.m and 7 and Anyway, long story short, there's some, like, switch that Andrew had to, like, undo because it's, like, corroded. So, like, the wind was, like, <laughs> The wind it was and... setting it off? Yes. Yeah, so, the wind oh, wow. was setting off my car alarm. So, anyway, so I saw Andrew putting a Band-Aid on his hand tonight, and I was like, oh, what did you do? And he was like, oh, I cut myself with the knife last night. And I was like, when? Like, I, like were you cooking after I went to bed? And he was like, no, like, I took the knife outside when I thought someone was breaking into your car. <laughs> I was like, what? what were you going to do with your kitchen knife with someone
0: like are you just was it that butcher one that big that big block one no no not that one it wasn't that one (laughs) that one is like a murder weapon right there
1: (laughs) Uh, but but it's one of his like new like super sharp knives like Mm -hmm. he's already cut himself on it like cooking so i'm like okay well that wasn't very smart but i'm just like what like what was your plan first of all there's nothing in that car worth going out (laughs) with a
0: knife over. Yeah. <laughs> but, like... <laughs> he was just ready. He yeah. was like, I don't know what I'm about to walk into. And this is the best I have.
1: <laughs> but, yeah, it was... Uh, I-, I feel... Re- I'm sure my neighbors hate me and I feel so bad because it's like we were able to turn it off, like, with the alarm. We didn't have to, like, go out to the car each time. Um, but at, like, 2 in the morning and we're trying to Google, like, what to do. And then it's like, oh, you have to, like, disconnect. And just, like, I can't, like, disconnect. I can't get into the battery at, like, 2 a.m. Like, yeah. standing... You know, So. Yeah, but apparently that happens if they get old and yeah. yeah, it just like set it off. And so now it's disconnected, so now I guess I just don't have an alarm, so don't come break into my car. But you know what? My car wasn't locked anyway, so <laughs> just yeah, go I mean,
0: ahead. just go best friend. Go ahead. <laughs> Sit in the car, go be that <laughs> drunk guy in the back seat of the car just sleeping. Oh
1: my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, that was <laughs> y'all seen that tiktok it was wild okay anyway that was my that's my true crime update of the week
0: (laughs) um and as far as true crime updates of not jacqueline's husband trying to attack (laughs) nobody attack the wind (laughs) with a knife apparently here we go
1: (laughs) um i believe it was what can i can i interject here really quick so when Cordy and I started this podcast, I was like, I really just want to get well-known enough that someone, like, makes cartoons out of us. Like, that's mm-hmm. all I want. And so now all I want is someone to make a cartoon of Andrew with the knife against the wind. So, yeah, if y'all are artistic. Yeah, <laughs> all we happen. ever
0: want is fan art. Like, if I got fan <laughs> art, I'd die. <laughs> I'd just die happy.
1: That, like, that would make our entire year. I mean, mm-hmm. just anyway, I just had to add that in there.
0: Continue with the important updates, please. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I believe it was last episode. We talked about uh, Lauren Smith Fields, who um, did die in Br- Bridgeport, Connecticut, and her family wasn't notified. And it was they didn't really interview the guy who was there, um, like very suspicious. Um, so there was actually another black woman in Bridgeport, Connecticut, where the police did not notify her family that she had died. Um, her name was Brenda Lee Rawls. So, again, like, this is very, very close to each other of the police just dropping the ball. Um, two detectives have been suspended. So, they are suspended right now with a investigation going on into, like, I guess, their conduct in the thing. And their boss retired. Just mysteriously retires, like, hmm.
1: right before
0: gets to keep your pensions mm-hmm. and all that shit, I'm sure. Um, of course. So... Obviously, when you see someone retire or put on suspended leave, they know they fucked up. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. you know you fucked up. So, hopefully we will get more answers in those cases coming soon. We'll keep you updated if we hear anything else. But clearly, this is not a one-off thing. Um, There's two women around the same time whose families were not notified that they died. Like, unacceptable.
1: Yeah. It just blows my mind. Like, I can't even imagine. But yeah, especially, like now that people are getting suspended and mysteriously retiring and all, like, okay, yeah, y'all know there's something deeper to this here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, So we mentioned in last week's episode that we did not want to celebrate Black History Month only talking about the lynching of a black man because we want to honor
0: black members in this true crime community. We're going to be talking about... Pioneers in true crime, true crime adjacent, yes, some of mine aren't necessarily true crime um <laughs> Courtney of went off on it. I cheated, <laughs> but they were important, yes, um, but yeah, like black pioneers in the true crime civil rights, yes, movements, yes, okay, so for My first person, I'm using the Ed Johnson Project website again, and I'm going to be talking about Noah Pardon. So we did mention him in our previous episode about Ed Johnson, um, but not really much about his history. So Noah Pardon was born in Rome, Georgia in 1865, and he became an orphan at seven years old. And in 1884, he moved to Chattanooga, Tennessee and enrolled at Howard High School. And he did graduate high school in 1890. He decided then to move to Nashville to attend law school at the Law Department of Central College, which, also researching this like all the names of like what colleges used to be like mm-hmm. in the like late eighteen hundreds are just so funny. It's just like yeah. Law Department of Central College. What else do you need to know? Like. <laughs> I have I have one of those too. That's really funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Noah had no money, but he made it work and he did graduate at the top of his class um, with his law degree. And he did move back to Chattanooga and practice law there for 15 years. So as we said, after Ed Johnson's appeal, Noah Pardon did have to move away from Chattanooga due to death threats. And he suffered a major loss in business. I mean, his building was caught on fire right before that. Then the next day, Ed Johnson was lynched and he was like, I gotta go. Mm-hmm. I can't stay here. Um, so he th- did, did then go on tour and spoke um, around the country about Ed Johnson's case, hmm. which I thought was pretty interesting. That is, um, interesting. and he even wrote a book about it. And eventually, Noah settled in Illinois with his wife and two ch- children, and he was the first ever black attorney in St. Clair County. Wow, so pretty cool. That's- and over the course of his career, he won 200 cases and became known as one of the best black lawyers in the country. Um, he was also known to knit, make his own clothes, and speak several languages. Wow. Like, Noah Pardon, man. <laughs> Like, I'm impressed.
1: Like, how do you have so much time to, like, master
0: all of these things? Yeah, like, are you just going on tour and just, like, in the tour bus just, like, <laughs> knitting away?
1: Like, that's right, so let cool. Let me learn how to knit and sew my own clothes and speak French over here. <laughs> I know.
0: Like, dude. Okay. Um, so the memorial for him, Ed Johnson, and Styles Hutchins is at the Walnut Street Bridge in Chattanooga. We talked about that some last episode. That was a nice one.
1: Um, So, for my first one, I have an article from blackpast.org, the Los Angeles Almanac, and the DeKalb County Superior Court website. So, Georgia Ann Robinson was the first black female police officer hired by the Los Angeles Police Department. Um, Some historians believe that she's likely the first black female police officer in the United States, but others say that Cora Parchment was hired by the New York Police Department just weeks before. Um, So, the dates are kind of iffy, like... Was mm-hmm. she the very first or, you know. Um, so, Cora Parchment worked with black communities in Harlem, but she did leave the NYPD after a few months. So, unfortunately, there's not really any more information about her or we would cover her specifically. Um, but one of these women was, like, the first black female police officer in the United States. Um, and Georgia Ann Robinson was the first with LAPD. So, she was born Georgia Ann Hill on May twelfth, eighteen 1879 in... Appaloosa nope, Apelousas, Ap- Apelousas, Louisiana, I wrote the pronunciation in here and I can't tell what I said,
0: so. I do that every time, where like I look it up and I'm like, oh yeah, this is just the most genius pronunciation yeah, I've ever totally. written out. And then I get on here and I'm like, Alabama, <laughs> like what did I <laughs> write? Uh,
1: but it made so much sense at the time. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, so her mother did die when she was young, and she was raised by an older sister. But eventually, her sister could no longer care for her and had to send her to a convent. Um, so Georgia moved to Kansas at the age of 18 to work as a governess, which is like a school teacher for children, like in a private residence. So kind of like a nanny situation, but like you're like you know teaching them like. Older grades and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and while in Kansas, she met and married Morgan Robinson. So they did move to Leadville, Colorado, where Georgia became involved with the women's suffragist movement. And they both had a daughter. <laughs> of course, they both had. A... Okay. <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> 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 they both contributed to making this human being um, a daughter named Marion. Um, and then they moved to Los Angeles. So in Los Angeles, Georgia became involved with various community organizations to give back and serve. And while working with these groups, she was approached by an LAPD recruiter who asked her to join the police force. So at this time, the police force was suffering from a staffing shortage because so many men were enlisting to fight in World War I. So they're like, we just need bodies. Like, will you come volunteer with us?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So she started volunteering with them on July 25th, 1916, when she was 37 years old. Um, The first female police officer had been hired by the LAPD nine years prior. Um, And then at the time that Georgia was hired, there were only four other female police officers, of course, all of them being white. So the police staffing shortage was worsened by the many deaths of the 1918 flu epidemic. So just coming full circle here, staffing shortages, (laughs) everyone's dying in a pandemic. So they're like, we need people in here. So she did volunteer with the force for three years. And then on June 10th, 1919, she was officially hired as a jail matron. So this was like the first like official hire of a black woman with LAPD. Um, and she would later assist with juvenile and homicide cases. And while serving as an investigator, she discovered that there was a need for a women's shelter in Los Angeles because there was like nothing. So she's like, I have nowhere to like send these people to, and I don't want to arrest them. So she helped to establish the Sojourner Truth Home for destitute women and girls. Um, and she did try her best to refer these young women to the shelter or other social services agencies because she didn't want to arrest them and take them to jail. Um, She was also known to take juveniles home with her at times, because she's like, let me just take you in and protect you and give you what you need. Mm -hmm. Um, At 49 years old, after working with the police force for 12 years, Georgia Ann broke up a fight between two women in her jail, and in the process, she received a severe head injury and became permanently blind, Um, so she was forced to retire. And years, right? Like, oh my gosh. Um, years later, in Ebony Magazine, she said, quote, I have no regrets. I didn't need my eyes any longer. I had seen all there was to see. Like,
0: what? what an outlook.
1: Right? Oh, my goodness. So after she retired, she continued to volunteer in her community, and she worked with Dr. Claude Hudson, who was the longtime president of the LA branch of the NAACP. Um, so they worked to desegregate Los Angeles schools and beaches, and she also continued working with the women's shelter that she helped found. Um, Georgia Ann Hill Robinson died on September 21st, 1961, at the age of 82.
0: So she was a pretty badass woman. But yes, what a remarkable woman and, like, just your outlook on life of, like, after you're blinded and you're forced to retire and you're just like, Yeah. That's just what it is. We're gonna keep on going. Yeah. I don't need those eyes anymore. Yeah. I saw everything. I'm good now. Yeah. Wow. Um, And so for this next one, I also use the Ed Johnson project because we can't talk about Noah Pardon without talking about Styles Hutchins. Of course. Of course. Styles Linton Hutchins was born in 1852 in Lawrenceville, Georgia, and he graduated from Atlanta University, and then he taught school in Athens, Georgia, until 1871, when he became principal of the Georgia Institute. So, pretty long career in the education sector. Ooh, look at that word I just used. Uh, so fancy.
1: <laughs> I couldn't get through a regular sentence, and Courtney's out here just <laughs> fluffing it up with the fancy words. cool. <laughs>
0: And then he decided, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. And he decided he wanted to become a lawyer in 1873. So he graduated from the University of Columbia, South Carolina in 1876. And he practiced law there for some time. And he even served as a judge in that state. And that's when he decided he wanted to return to Georgia So, he really had to fight to be admitted to the Georgia Bar. And as we mentioned last week, he was the first black man admitted to the Georgia Bar. So, he really had to, like, fight for his position there of, like, you have to allow me to practice law. Like, I am a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Eventually, the racism in Georgia pushed him north, where he settled in Chattanooga for some time. And in 1893, Alfred Blunt was lynched in Chattanooga. So... We have another history of a man being lynched in Chattanooga that I didn't know about and also did not come up in the Ed Johnson research. Wow. Like, wow. what's going on, Chattanooga? Mm-hmm. And and also, Chattanooga was reported to be, like, more accepting than other yeah. places. So keep so, like, that this, in mind. This is the best place to be. Yeah. yeah. And Stiles rep- uh, represented his widow, Anne. So they sued the sheriff. And so it's not shit sheriff ship. But it's another shithole. <laughs> so. <laughs> so they sued him for not adequately protecting her husband. And Stiles also started a newspaper called The Independent Age and was elected to the Tennessee Legislator. Legislature. Legislature. <laughs> Legislature. That's a hard word. A lot of I else. always struggle with that word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and in 1901, he was ordained as a minister. So we have another renaissance man here of just like doing it all. <laughs> He's doing it all. Because also he served as a revenue gauger and a notary public. So doing it all. Wow. Following the lynching of Ed Johnson, he was forced to leave Chattanooga due to violent threats and he moved to Illinois, where he practiced law for a few more years. and he eventually retired and became a barber. It's so wholesome. a barber. <laughs> yeah. Um, as mentioned with Noah Pardon, he is memorialized at the Walnut Street Bridge.
1: Tell you these men just like, Picking up all these hobbies and doing all this extra, like, just
0: so talented. Yeah, and I guess back then, like, you didn't have Netflix and you didn't, (laughs) you didn't, like, go places that much. Like, you're just like, I'm going to learn French this week.
1: I mean, that is true. You didn't waste two hours scrolling on TikTok, you know? So you just have all kinds kinds of time for stuff, so.
0: Yeah, I was thinking that, too, because I'm currently kind of reading a book that deals, like, with the 1918 flu pandemic Mm -hmm. and um i was just thinking like damn what did y'all do like (laughs) i sat here and watched tiger king and people were making bread (laughs) and like what did you do back then with your three channels that had nothing on them because everyone was sick anyway that's just my thought
1: (laughs) wait you said you're talking about the
0: 1918 yeah the spanish flu yeah they didn't have tv then i know but it had like three channels When my dad grew up, he said TV had three channels.
1: Yeah, but they didn't have TV in 1918.
0: Yeah, they did. Sure. Okay, they had the radio. (laughs) No one was making it either.
1: (laughs) I was like, wait a minute.
0: I don't think... (laughs) Hold on. I'm Googling. Some real-time research here. Okay, 1927. (laughs) So, but, okay, the radio. But nothing was on the radio either. <laughs> well,
1: 1927 is still earlier than I thought it would be. So, anyway, you're welcome for that little tidbit that you guys did not know <laughs> was going to come up that we did not either. So, <laughs> All right, so for um, this next one, I, again, got some information from blackpast.org, which is a wonderful website, by the way. They have tons of great bios on there, so definitely check it out. Um, also, a website called <laughs> Coffee or Die, which I didn't realize until I, like, opened it, and I just was like, Coffee Ordy, that's a really weird name for Ordy. a website. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, oh, Coffee or Die, okay. So, Samuel J. Battle was born on January 16th, 1883 in New Bern, North Carolina, which I used to live really close to, so that was exciting, um, and he broke the record for the largest baby born in North Carolina at a whopping 16 pounds. Ouch. 16 pounds i i literally in my notes have ouch in parentheses after
0: that yeah that's not a baby even in 2022 standards mm. i would want to deliver that is more than twice what
1: my child weighed
0: <laughs> like more than
1: double Ooh, her i weight. bet that woman's
0: vaheem never mm. recovered no
1: Mm no So he's like,
0: it is out of business forever.
1: (laughs) She's like, nope, we're done. Um, And his father was a Methodist minister. And as a teenager, Samuel got caught stealing money from his boss's safe. So his boss chose not to press charges because he was friends with Samuel's father. But he said that Samuel would be in prison within the end, within that next year. So he's like, I'm not going to press charges, but I know you're kind and you're going to jail anyway. So whatever. Um, Yeah. So, Samuel was determined to prove him wrong. So, he moved to Connecticut for a while and then to New York City in 1901 to work as a houseboy and red cap at the Sagamore Hotel. Um, So, the red caps were an African-American workforce that hauled passenger bags and provided services for long-distance railroad travel. Um, And he did meet many celebrities through this work, such as heavyweight boxing champion Jack Johnson and Teddy Roosevelt. Um, his brother-in-law, Moses Cobb, was a police officer for the city of Brooklyn before they merged with New York City, and this inspired him to become a police officer. Um, I found an article that said he was looking for stability to provide for his family, but I can't find anything about, like, when he got married and had kids and stuff like that, so I don't know. I assume they're there at some point, but... Mm-hmm. Um, So while getting his medical clearance, a surgeon for the NYPD falsified a report saying that Battle had a heart murmur and was unfit for duty. Um, And this was clearly just an attempt to prevent a black man from becoming an NYPD officer because at this point there were none of them. Um, So Battle sought out another prominent white physician who said that he had no heart murmur and was fit. Um, So the black newspaper, the New York age reported on this and pressured the NYPD into accepting the new medical report. So battle was able to go through, um, with like all of his testing and everything. And he did rank 119th out of 638 on his police test and was officially appointed as the first black NYPD officer on June 28th, 1911. And he was 28 years old. So, Battle was first assigned to the San Juan Hill neighborhood, which was the heart of Black New York at the time. Um, and this is the Lincoln Center area now. And on his first day on the job, the other officers gave him the silent treatment, which would go on for two years. So, they're just like, yep, I Ooh. want nothing to do with you. I'm just going to completely ignore you. They also moved his bed from, like, their bunk area to this, like, loft area where they stored the American flag. So, like, a closet, basically. They just, like, moved his bed yeah. in there.
0: how rude yeah
1: but these attempts to drive him out of the forest did not work um and he was even courtney i could not believe this he was a stop on the tourist like bus tour like come look at this black police officer because it was so like out of the ordinary like literally like he was a stop on the tour that was like and here we have a black police officer (laughs) like like a fucking circus show hi right (laughs) hey there just doing my job crazy yeah So he was later reassigned to Harlem, which would become a predominantly black area. And Samuel Battle became the first black sergeant in 1926, the first black lieutenant in 1935, and the first black parole commissioner in 1941. So all of these titles within the NYPD. Um, He did face a lot of discrimination during his time with the NYPD, again in addition to being treated as a tourist spectacle and being given the silent treatment he also received notes with racist threats with bullet holes in them so they like wrote this like racist shit on paper and like shot bullets into them and then left them on his desk um however battle persisted in his role and even saved the life of a fellow officer who was beaten by a mob of teenagers like he was like intercepted and like saved this man's life um, and he did head one of the first NYPD SWAT teams as well um, he was also called upon by New York City's mayor to help calm the community during the 1943 Harlem riot um, so because he was so involved with the community they brought him in to kind of like settle things down um, he also served as a mentor to black youth in his community including boxer Sugar Ray Robinson and Wesley Williams who was one of the first black firefighters through the New York Fire Department so, Battle asked Langston Hughes, who was the poet and leader of the Harlem Renaissance, to write his autobiography, and Eleanor Roosevelt actually read the manuscript and decided to write the foreword. Um, so, she wrote, quote, "...this is a record of a man's life, and as he tells it, you not only see one life, but you see the struggles and the victories and the defeats of a whole group of U.S. citizens." What courage it took, what remarkable stamina to be the first colored policeman in New York City. There were qualities of mind and heart and body that were purely personal, but above everything else, there was the realization that he was fighting not for himself alone, but for his people. Um, Unfortunately, his autobiography was never published and his story isn't widely known because of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Battle did retire in 1951 at the age of 68 and he was the highest ranking black police officer in the force at the time and he died on August 7th, 1966 at the age of 83. And in 2009, the intersection of West 135th Street and Lenox Avenue was renamed Samuel J. Battle Plaza um, because this is the location of the mob fight that he broke up in 1919 where he saved the life of another officer. So they did rename that for him.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. And especially, like, so far, it's a lot of people, like, myself and probably... majority of the public have just like not heard of either yeah you know not at all Mm -hmm. crazy all right and my next one i used ellabakercenter.org as a resource so can you guess who i'm doing this on (laughs) (laughs) so ella joe baker was born on december 13th 1903 in norfolk virginia Um, She did grow up in North Carolina, and early on, she kind of developed a sense for, like, racial injustice. So her grandmother was a former enslaved person, and during her grandmother's enslavement, her grandmother had been whipped for refusing to marry a man chosen for her by her enslaver. Yeah. So her grandma was like, no, (sighs) no, no. Mm -hmm. Um, and Ella Baker would reference her grandmother's pride and resilience in the face of racism and injustice as constant inspiration, like throughout her life. She was like, knowing what my grandmother like stood up for and did, like helped me through my whole life of like, to keep me motivated and inspired Mm -hmm. to keep going. Yeah. And Ella's maternal grandparents bought, lived and cultivated land that was formerly a part of a plantation on which they were enslaved. And they bought the land for $250 and paid it off in installments. So they became, um, so they were very proud of this accomplishment and they were successful farmers. So Ella studied at Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina. And as a student, she challenged school policies that she thought were unfair. And after graduating in 1927 as class valedictorian, she moved to New York City and began joining social activist organizations. And in 1930, she joined the Young Negroes Cooperative League, whose purpose was to develop Black economic power through collective planning. And she was also involved with many women's organizations. And she began working with the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or as we all know it. The NAACP in 1940. She worked as a field secretary and then served as director of branches from 1943 to 1946. So again, another woman, person who's just doing it all. Like, so many Mm -hmm. organizations she's a part of. Yeah. So, inspired by the historic bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955, Ella co-founded the organization In Friendship to raise money to fight against Jim Crow laws in the Deep South. And in 1957, Ella moved to Atlanta to help organize Martin Luther King Jr.'s new organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is the SCLC. And she also ran a voter registration campaign called the Crusade for Citizenship. And on February 1st, 1960, a group of black college students from North Carolina A&T University refused to leave a Woolworth's lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, where they had been denied service. So Ella decided now to leave the SCLC because she wanted to assist the new student activists because she viewed young emerging activists as a resource and an asset to the movement. She was like, we need these young students who are also standing up to injustice. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Ella organized a meeting at Shaw University for the student leaders of the sit-ins in April 1960. And from this meeting, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or the SNCC, was born. So SNCC members joined with activists from the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, to organize the 1961 Freedom Rides in 1964 sncc helped create freedom summer which was an effort to focus national attention on mississippi's racism and to register black voters and ella believed strongly in voting and that voting was the key to freedom um and i think we see that a lot today like your local elections affect the senate and house elections affect the presidential Mm -hmm. election like it's all important we gotta all of it yeah definitely (laughs) so with ella's guidance and encouragement, SNCC became one of the foremost advocates for human rights in the country. And because of her influence, Ella got the nickname Fundy. Oh, I think I pronounced that wrong. I'm really sorry. I meant to look that up. (laughs) Um, But it's a Swahili word, meaning a person who teaches a craft to the next generation. And she's also known as the mother of the civil rights movement. And Ella continued to be a respected and influential leader in fighting for human and civil rights until her death on December 13th, 1986, which was on her 83rd birthday. So. Wow. So Ella had a very large hand in the civil rights movements and founding organizations we know today. But I still don't feel like she gets the recognition she deserves because she was helping, like, with Martin Luther King Jr. She was the mother of all of you know there she's called the mother of the civil rights movement mm-hmm. but like her name isn't talked about as much as others names Hmm.
1: yeah i think that's definitely something that comes up a lot when you know doing this kind of research that you're like we have like these big names that like everyone knows but then you have names that like you're like why don't mm-hmm. we know more about this person like why isn't this person covered more in like general history yeah. and you know i mean we know why because you know whitewashing so they pick a few people that they're going to cover and that's it mm-hmm. but it's just yeah it's crazy um so again blackpast.org this website's <laughs> great um, and also an article from aareg so alan macon bowling was born as a free man in indiana in 1816 um, he learned to read and write on his own and got a job as a teacher as a young adult, which I've seen that is a theme in all of these people that we're talking about. We have a mm-hmm. lot of teachers. Um, in the 1940s, he moved to Portland, Maine and changed his name to Macon, Bolan, Alling. Not really sure why. He just mixed up the order, yeah. but okay. Um, and it was here that he became friends with an anti-slavery leader and lawyer named General Samuel Fessenden. And Fessenden took Allen in as an apprentice and law clerk, and in 1844, Fessenden believed that Allen was competent to practice law on his own, so he introduced him to the Portland District Court. So, at the time, according to Maine law, anyone, quote, of good moral character could be admitted to the bar. However, the district court refused him because he was not a citizen, which was not part of their requirements. But they're like, well, actually, you're black, so we got to find some reason to say you can't be a lawyer here. Um, So he then had to apply for admission by examination, and he passed his examination and was declared a citizen of Maine and was then given his license to practice law on July 3rd, 1844. Um, And he is believed to be the first black attorney in the United States who was actively Mm -hmm. practicing um, but none of the white men in the area would hire a black attorney and there weren't enough black men in the area for Allen to be able to get work. So he did move to Boston in 1845, um, which is where he met his wife, Hannah, and they had five sons. Um, I think they said like four of which were teachers too. <laughs> um, yeah, so lots of teachers around here. Um, and Alan passed the Massachusetts bar exam on May 5th, 1845, and he walked 50 miles to the test site because he could not afford transportation. So that's how badly he wanted this. Wow. Like, how
0: long would that take you? Because if you average... <laughs> a very long if you time. you average, like, walking, like, a 12 to 15 minute mile, I mean, that's like a casual mm-hmm. pace. Times 50? Oof. That's like days. I mean... Yeah. That's yeah. Crazy. Like you would have to, I mean, I I ran a very
1: slow marathon which is 26.2 miles at 5 hours and 15 minutes. And that's like running,
0: like jogging, to, not just yeah. like
1: what Yeah, exactly. So it's like double that, more than double that. Wow. No. Less than <laughs> almost <laughs> I it's late at night if you guys can't tell my brain is not <laughs> functioning anymore. Okay. So, he did open the first black law office in the United States alongside his partner, Robert Morris Jr. Um, unfortunately, he still faced discrimination and difficulty finding people who were willing to hire him as an attorney, so he decided to seek out becoming a judge. Because um, then you don't have to have, like, individual people, mm-hmm. you know, reaching out to you. Like, you're going to have, like, consistent money. Um, So in 1848, he passed the exam to become a justice of the peace for Middlesex County, Massachusetts, and he is believed to be the first black man in the United States to hold a judiciary position. So after the Civil War, Allen moved to Charleston, South Carolina, to open another new legal practice, and in 1873, he was appointed as judge in the Inferior Court of Charleston, and the year after that, he was elected judge probate for Charleston County. Um, after Reconstruction, Allen moved again to Washington, D.C., where he worked as an attorney for the Land and Improvement Association, and he continued to practice law until his death at the age of 78.
0: Wow. That's pretty incredible, yeah. just being like, I'm going to be an attorney, and you're not going to stop me. Mm-hmm. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, just like that like amount of determination, and like, then I'm going to go on and be a judge, mm-hmm. and I'm going
0: to do this and this, and yeah, super cool. Okay, um, and I used for this next one, uh, womenshistory.org and historyhouse.gov. So Shirley Anita St. Hill Chisholm was born in Brooklyn, New York on November 3rd, 1924. And she was the oldest of four daughters to immigrant parents, Charles St. Hill, who was a factory worker from Ghana, and Ruby Seal St. Hill, who was a seamstress from Barbados. Um, So she did graduate from Brooklyn Girls High in 1942. And from Brooklyn College, cum laude in 1946. So she won many prizes on her debate team while in college, and many professors encouraged her to consider a political career. And initially, though, after she graduated, Shirley worked as a nursery school teacher. So we got another we got another teacher in here.
1: Another teacher. I'm telling you. And in 1949,
0: she married Conrad Q. Chisholm, who worked as a private investigator. Um, they would later go on to get divorced in 1977. Um, but she earned a master's at Columbia University in early childhood education in 1951. And by 1960, <laughs> she was a consultant to the New York division of daycare. So she took her teacher wow. position and was like, I'm gonna upgrade it. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, And as a black woman, she was very aware of the racial and gender inequality, and she joined local ca- chapters of the League of Women Voters, then double ACP, the Urban League, and the Democratic Party in Bedford-Stuy, Brooklyn. So in 1964, Shirley ran for and became the second black member of the New York State Legislature. And in 1968, after court-ordered redistrict... One second. In 1968, after court-ordered redistricting. Why can't I say (laughs) redistricting? Redistrict. That's a hard word. That is a tough word. Okay. In 1968, after court ordered redistricting... Sorry, guys. I don't know why I'm stuttering on that (laughs) word. They just made new districts. Okay? (laughs) So... (laughs) When they made new districts, they created a new heavily Democratic district in the neighborhood. And Shirley sought and won a seat in Congress in this district. And she became nicknamed as Fighting Shirley. And I can't wait for you guys to see the picture of her that we will post. Because she looks like such a badass. Like, every picture of her, she looks like... I'm not going to take your fucking shit. Like, <laughs> she would be the girl who would, like, walk in and be like, that top looks terrible on you, and she's not being mean, she's just being honest, you know? She's just like, going to like, tell you how it is. I need you straight to the point. Like, sh- this is the girl we all need in our life, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in Congress, she in- introduced more than 50 pieces of legislation and defended racial and gender equality, the plight of the poor, and ending the Vietnam War. She was also a co-founder of the National Women's Political Caucus in 1971, and in 1977, she became the first black woman and second woman ever to serve on the powerful House Rules Committee. Hmm. So, this year, she also married Arthur Hardwick Jr., who was a New York state legislator. And during this time, she also sponsored increases in federal funding to extend the hours of daycare facilities and get a guaranteed minimum annual income for families. So I think this is still also something like a lot of people fight for today is extended daycare Mm -hmm. hours. So especially back then, she's like, we got to fight for this. Like, Mm -hmm. we need this for people to work. So Shirley had also tried to run for president as a Democrat in 1972. She could have been our first woman, our first black president. She could have been. But... Of course, <laughs> discrimination blocked her from participating in any televised primary debates. So they were just like, wow. no, you don't get to talk. Mm-hmm. Um, but she did take legal action. But after that, she was still only allowed to make one speech. So, of course, <laughs> you're not going to really no. jump on board after one speech. And especially in 1972, when it's not like you can just Google them. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yeah, Um and many students, women, and minorities followed the, quote, Chisholm Trail. And she entered 12 primaries and got 152 of the delegates' votes, which is about 10%. So people were still kind of supporting her. Yeah. Just not really enough coverage of her. hmm So Shirley did retire from Congress in 1983, and she taught at Mount Holyoke College, and co-founded the National Political Congress of Black Women. And in 1991, she moved to Florida, and she was offered the role of U.S. ambassador to Jamaica, but she did decline it due to failing health. And Shirley was quoted saying, I want to be remembered as a woman who dared to be a catalyst of change. And she did die on January 1st, 2005 in Ormond Beach, Florida. Man, what what a wonderful, amazing, strong woman, you know? Breaking so many glass ceilings, she's like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm coming, I'm coming just for you guys. It's like, like shattering them to shit.
1: I love it. So, um, for this next one, I read a New York Times article, and you're never gonna guess, I got an article from blackpass.org.
0: <laughs> I am shocked, <laughs> I and I'm also like, a little sad that way. you didn't share this with me when I was looking for names. <laughs>
1: My bad. (laughs) I didn't even realize until, like, just now that I was like, oh, I use that same website a lot.
0: (laughs) I'll steal it for when we do eventually our part two of this, because this has got to be a continuing series. I mean, it's got to be. Oh, yeah.
1: There were too many. Yeah. So, Jane Boleyn was born on April 11th, 1908 in Poughkeepsie, New York. Um, Her father was an attorney and the president of the Dutchess County Bar Association. So articles and photos of lynchings that were published in Crisis Magazine got Jane's attention and she knew that she wanted to be an attorney like her father. So Jane worked as a law clerk in her father's office while attending college and then graduated from Wellesley College in 1928 and was named a Wellesley Scholar, which is a distinction given to the top 20 students in the class. So already she's just like the top of the top. The cream of the crop. I, noticed, I don't know the top of the top. I noticed That's that not a, in a lot of
0: mine too, especially ones where it was like they had trouble like getting into schools, or even like mm-hmm. when they did attend school, they were like top of their class. They were like, "Yeah, I'm very, very smart," and they were. Yes. Are both. <laughs> um,
1: this next part is like my favorite. Uh, tidbit of this woman um so she told her guidance counselor that she wanted to pursue law but she was told that a black woman had a very small chance of like getting into law school or like being in the field or anything so she then went on to be the first black woman to graduate from yale law school in 1931 so you just shove that up your ass you guidance counselor Mm -hmm. she was also the first black woman to pass the new york bar exam in 1932 um, she was the only black person in her class at Yale and was one of only three women. She also worked at her father's law practice for a while after graduating, and she then married another attorney, Ralph E. Mizell, the next year, and they opened a law practice in New York City together, and they would later have a son named York. In 1937, Bullen was named assistant corporation counsel for the city of New York and served on the domestic relation court Um, which would later be um, renamed as family court. So, like that, Mm -hmm. uh, like adoptions and, um, you know, foster care and stuff like that. So, Mayor LaGuardia actually appointed her judge of the Domestic Relations Court in 1939. And in an interview with the New York World Telegram the day after being appointed, she said she hoped to show a broad sympathy for human suffering. So, Mm. she's like, I want to do good in this position. I also have
0: a side note question. So is that mayor who the airport's named after? Yes, that is him. Oh, how cool. I I never really thought about where that name came from. So you said (laughs) it and I was like, there it is. (laughs) I know that name. Yep, that is is the one.
1: Um, And she did serve in that position for 40 years and she worked tirelessly to create change. Her two biggest accomplishments in that position were assigning probation officers to cases without regard for race or religion, because before that, you could do that, but she put an end to that. Um, And she also required that publicly funded private childcare agencies accept children without regard to ethnic background. Um, She, In this position, she chose not to wear her judicial robes to work because she wanted to make the children feel more comfortable there. So she's like, I want Mm -hmm. to like... Dressed down and seem like an everyday person. Like I don't want to like,
0: you know, scare put, them. Like, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So unfortunately, Jane's husband died in 1943, um, and in 1950 she remarried a minister named Walter P. Offutt Jr. Um, and Walter died in 1974. So Judge Jane Boleyn retired in 1979 after reaching the mandatory retirement age, and she complained that they were kicking her out because she wasn't ready to retire yet. But she reached the maximum age, and they're like, you gotta go. Mm -hmm. Um, So she spent two years as a volunteer reading instructor for New York City schools, and then she went on to serve on the New York State University Board of Regents, and her role there was to review disciplinary cases. Jane Bolin was a member of the NAACP, the National Urban League, and the Child Welfare League, and was very outspoken on civil rights issues. And she did die in
0: 2007. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. All these people are just so so amazing. Which is I know, right? I feel like (laughs) we have to do a part two, and I'm already saying that we have to open it up to like not just true crime adjacent.
1: Right, yeah, just just make this a broad, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. just in general. You guys are yeah. along for the ride, you know. Yeah, sometimes we, it's important, okay? <laughs> um. So the resources for this next one are the snccdigital.org and allthat'sinteresting.com. So Annie Lee Cooper was born on June 2nd, 1910 in Selma, Alabama, and she was one of ten children. I cannot wow. imagine growing up with nine siblings. No. Can't imagine it. (laughs) Um, And at the time she was growing up, black people were not allowed to vote in Alabama due to Alabama's newly passed constitution. So Annie did not see black people vote until she went to stay with her sick sister in Kentucky. So she left school around seventh grade to go take care of her sick sister. Um, And so it wasn't until then that she was like, oh, wait, black people can vote. Like, can you imagine? Wait a minute. Can you imagine being like 12, 13, 14 and being like, wait, what is my life? So Annie went back to Selma in April 1962 to take care of her sick mother and found a job working at the Dunn Rest Home. So around this time, um, Bernard Lafayette and his wife, Colia Liddell of the SNCC came to Selma to organize for voting rights. So Annie had been registered to vote when she lived in Kentucky and she'd lived in Ohio as well. And she's like, I want to be able to vote again. Like I was able Mm -hmm. to vote when I lived here. I want to be able to vote in Alabama as well. So Annie tried to register to vote and the registrar told her that she'd failed the test. So this test, the registrar is referencing is basically an impossible to pass literacy test that made no sense whatsoever it was literally Mm -hmm. designed to keep black voters from ever being able to register yeah um and she just kept trying and she tried often and she failed every single time because that's the way the system was made um and she said one day she stood in line from 7 a.m to 4 p.m and was never given the chance to register Um, So, Annie began working with the Dallas County Voters League and the SNCC efforts as well. On October 7th, 1963, SNCC organized the first Freedom Day, urging black residents to come in masses to the Dallas County Courthouse to try and register to vote. So, Annie was among the 400 people who showed up, and they stood in the sun for hours, just trying to stand in line to vote. Um, Wow. Mr. Dunn, who was the owner and manager of Dunn Rest Home, saw Annie and another employee standing out in the lines, and he fired both of them. Mm -hmm. So he even tried to take Annie's picture to prevent her from getting further employment, but she refused to pose. Mm -hmm. Because why? Right? right? You get fired, and he's like, let me take a picture of you, so I can't. I don't know. I just imagine the crustiest old white man um, mm -hmm. being like, let me take a picture of you. And it's like, no. What are you doing? So, So Dunn then struck her with a cattle prod. So, all of Dunn's other black employees, which was about 40 individuals, walked off in protest. So, they all were like, fuck you. (laughs) Goodbye. Um, And the white citizens in Selma blacklisted these women, and they found it basically impossible to get jobs. Um, But Annie did finally find employment at a black-owned motel. And in early 1965, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and SCLC arrived in Selma to stage a nationally generated campaign for voting rights and began demonstrations. And then on October 25th, Annie had been standing in line for hours at the courthouse waiting to register to vote when the police arrived to break things up. And Annie muttered, nobody's afraid of them. (laughs) I'm like, what a bad bitch. I love it. Oh, and she's about to be. We love a bad bitch. (laughs) She's about to be the baddest bitch. Oh, Oh, just wait. (laughs) Can't wait. After she said this. Sheriff Jim Clark then poked her in the neck with his billy club. So Sheriff Jim Clark is pretty notoriously known as being a big old pile of shit. Um, <laughs> he had a reputation of being violent. He'd recruited the KKK to keep black citizens from voting booths. Um, he was known to beat and arrest nonviolent protesters and even used cattle prods to stab black citizens. Well, wow. So, as we said, Annie being the baddest bitch spun around and punched him straight in the face and knocked him to the ground after he hit her. I love it. I love it. So the sheriff's deputies attacked her and arrested her and charged her with criminal provocation. And a few weeks after the incident, she said, I try to be nonviolent, but I can't just say I wouldn't do the same thing all over again if they treat me brutish like they did this time. So Annie was quickly released after being arrested when Jim Clark threatened to beat her while she was behind bars. Oh, God. Like threatening to beat someone who's in jail. So they were like, we mm-hmm. got to let her go because this dude's like, even yeah. his other employees were like, this dude's <laughs> psychotic. We got to yeah. let her go. Yeah, we, we got to get her away from him. What yeah. the fuck? So shortly after this incident, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed and Annie played a huge role in getting black Alabama citizens the rights to vote. After this, she settled into a quiet life in Selma, and her community honored her contribution by naming a street after her on her 100th birthday. Um, And she did die on November 24th, 2010 in Selma, just a few months after her 100th birthday. So Annie didn't really get the national recognition she deserves until 2014, when the Academy Award-winning film Selma was released, and she was played by none other than Oprah Winfrey. Who else would play her? I mean, I mean, you got to have a bad bitch to play a bad bitch. The truer words
1: <laughs> have never been spoken, Courtney. <laughs> yeah. Wow, what an amazing human being! Like, I feel like I say the same thing after each one of these, but it's just so like.
0: Uh, well, I feel yeah. like too. I, like when I was doing it, I was like, "Ooh, I'm really excited to talk about this one." And, but I do that each one. I'm like, "Oh, I'm so excited! Like this one's my favorite." I know, right? And I'm like, "No, no, no! This one's my favorite!" Like, I was thinking it's the same just thing. Incredible! Like. And it's so disheartening that, like, so many of these names are not known. And that's why we're doing yep. this. And, of course, we're just a little small podcast. But we're just trying to inform anyone listening just of some bad bitches and mm-hmm. men. Bad... <laughs> bad bros? <laughs> yes. Bad bros. Oh, man. I was trying to be, like, deep right there. And I just ruined it. So... I. I like it. I'm, I'm all about it.
1: Um, so, like I said, we are trying to do those that are not as well-known. So, my last one is well-known, but parts of her life are not well-known. So, I wanted to cover, mm-hmm. like, those parts. And also, it ties into someone else, too. So, um, but I use the History Channel website for this one. So, we all know Rosa Parks as the black woman who refused to give up her seat in the front of the bus during the Civil Rights Movement, But Rosa Parks was involved with activism and the criminal justice system long before that moment. Like, this is, like, this isn't the start of her Mm -hmm. career in activism. Um, Rosa Louise McCauley was born in Tuskegee? Tuskegee? Alabama?
0: Tuskegee?
1: Tuskegee, Alabama. Mm Mm-hmm. There you go. That's the one. (laughs) Yep. Uh, (laughs) On February 4th, 1913, to James and Leona McCauley. Um, they did move in with Leona's parents in Pine Level when Rosa was two, and her brother Sylvester was born shortly after that, um, and her parents did separate soon after the birth of her brother. Leona was a teacher and the family highly valued education, and Rosa attended the Alabama State Teachers College for Negroes, which is another one that we're like, it's a very specific, yeah. this is exactly what this college is, it's all it needs to be named for, um, But she did have to leave in the 11th grade to care for her dying grandmother and then mother. Um, So she married Raymond Parks in 1932 at the age of 19. Um, Raymond was 10 years older than her and a self-educated man who worked as a barber. And he was also a member of the NAACP and supported Rosa in completing her high school diploma, which she did the year after they were married. In 1943, Rosa Parks joined the NAACP and worked to protect black men from false sexual assault allegations and lynchings and to make sure that black women who were sexually assaulted by white men were actually able to take their cases to court. So she worked like in this very specific area of activism Mm -hmm. in the criminal justice system. Uh, And this issue was personal for Rosa because a white male neighbor had attempted to sexually assault her in 1931. Um, do want to give a trigger warning for sexual assault here. One of the most famous cases that Rosa assisted with was the rape of Reese Taylor. So on September 3rd, 1944, 24 year old sharecropper, Reese Taylor was walking home from church when a van of seven young white men approached her and accused her of attacking a white boy in town. They then forced her in the car by saying they were going to take her to see the sheriff and they blindfolded and gang raped her and threatened to kill her. If she told anyone. So the group released Reese and she was walking home when her father found her and she told him what had happened to her. So they went to the sheriff and then a friend who had actually witnessed the kidnapping also went to police separately. So this next part, just, I, I shouldn't be surprised, but. So the sheriff actually took Reesey to a store in town to see if she could identify any of the men who had raped her. And she did identify two of them who confirmed that they had been there with, the, who confirmed that they had been with her that night. So, the sheriff told them to get in their car and leave. He's
0: basically like, you need to get out of here. Yeah. So, he's like pretending like he's going to do something and he's like, I'm really just trying to protect these men who did it.
1: Exactly. Like, let me find out who you're accusing so I can tell them to to, just scram. So, news of the assault and the lack of investigation reached the local NAACP and Rosa Parks was sent to investigate. So the sheriff drove to Reese's house, drove by Reese's house repeatedly while Rosa was there and eventually told her that she needed to leave town because he didn't want any troublemakers there. Get out of here. So Rosa then went back to Montgomery, where she launched the Committee for Equal Justice for the Rights of Mrs. Reese Taylor, and the case did become headline news across the country by October. Then on October 9th, a grand jury refused to indict the defendants. Um, one of the suspect's lawyers actually offered Reese's husband, Willie Guy Taylor, $600 to let it go. So they're like, we'll give you this money if you'll just drop this case. So um, Rosa wrote to the governor and asked him not to fail to let the people of Alabama know that there is equal justice for all of our citizens. But to no one's surprise, no charges were ever brought against the men who raped Reese Taylor. In 2011, the Alabama House of Representatives apologized to Reese Taylor for the state's, quote, morally abhorrent and repugnant failure to prosecute those men. Reese Taylor died on December 28, 2017, at the age of 97. And Rosa Parks was a lifelong champion for those who did not get justice from our criminal justice system. So... Of course, the incident Rosa Parks is most known for occurred on December 1st, 1955. I'm not going to cover too many details here because most people know this part of her, but I didn't want to like not include it um so rosa was working at the montgomery fair department store and was riding the bus on her way back home from work so the front of the bus was reserved for white riders and the back of the bus for black riders so a white man got on the bus and there were no seats available in the section reserved for white people so the bus driver james blake told the four black people in the first row of the black section that they needed to move back so basically he could create another white row so like they were even in the black section but then he's like Mm -hmm. oh here's a white man who can't sit so you have to move even further back like I need to make this a white row now um so Rosa was the only one of the four people that did not move and in her autobiography she wrote people always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired but that isn't true I was not tired physically no the only tired I was was tired of giving in so Rosa was arrested, and this led to the boycott of the Montgomery bus system. She was found guilty of violating segregation laws, lost her job, and was continually harassed. On November 13, 1956, so over a year later, the or almost a year later, the Supreme Court ruled that bus segregation was unconstitutional. So the court's written order arrived in Montgomery on December 20th and then officially ended the bus boycott. So, Rosa ended up moving to Detroit with her mother and husband because she experienced so much harassment, like she couldn't stay where she was. She became an administrative aide in the Detroit office of Congressman John Conyers Jr. in 1965, and she worked there until she retired in 1988. In 1987, she co-founded the Rosa and Raymond Parks Institute for Self-Development to help youth in Detroit. Um she was also awarded the congressional gold medal in 1999 and Rosa Parks died on October 24th, 2005 at the age of 92.
0: Yeah, I think this is a thing too which I thought with um with Annie Cooper's case as well. Um, I mean this is Alabama in 1965 and black citizens still could not vote. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. It is very possible that your parents, probably definitely your grandparents, were alive then.
1: Mm Because people
0: always want to be like, it was so long ago, it happened. And it's like, no, like, this is recent history that these things are happening. And, like, it's not like we've come very far since then. So, nope, it's, yeah. So, the last one we have today um, is also, and more... Well-known person, but mm-hmm. I think we know the name, but we don't know as much about him in general. Mm-hmm. So I used Britannica.com and the NAACP LegalDefenseFund.org website. So Thurgood Marshall was born on July 2nd, 1908 in Baltimore, Maryland, and his name was originally Thurgood Marshall, but I couldn't find mm-hmm. like when or why. It just became clear yeah. good. Maybe he just preferred it. I'd I i did not really see anything about when that kind of happened. It's a big mouthful for a duck. He was trying to write it as a kid and was like, Yeah. I can't like, no, this I is, can't this write all this. Much. There's too many O's. There's like five yep. O's in that. Too,
1: too uh, many sounds coming out of my little toddler mouth. This is yeah. this is
0: hard. <laughs> so he was the son of William Canfield Marshall, who was a railroad porter and a steward at an all White Country Club, and Norma Williams Marshall, who was an elementary school teacher. He did graduate from Lincoln University in Pennsylvania in 1930, and Thurgood attended Howard University Law School after he was rejected from the University of Maryland Law School because he was not white. So he did receive his degree in 1933 after graduating top of his class, and at Howard, he was the protege of Charles Hamilton Houston, who encouraged Thurgood and his other students to view the law as a vehicle for social change. Upon his graduation, Thurgood began the private practice of law in Baltimore, and among his legal victories includes Murray v. Pearson in 1935, which was a lawsuit accusing the University of Maryland of violating the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection of the laws, By denying a black applicant admission to its law school solely on the basis of race. So karma is a bitch, isn't it, University of Maryland? (laughs) Like you denied Thurgood Marshall and then he went and won a case of you being racist, basically. I love it. So, in 1936, Thurgood became a staff lawyer under Houston for the NAACP, and in 1938, he became the lead chair in the legal office of the NAACP, and two years later, so he's just, like, climbing up the ranks here. Boom, boom, boom. Yep. He was named chief of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. So, throughout the 40s and 50s, Thurgood established himself as one of the top lawyers in the U.S., winning 29 of 32 cases he argued in front of the Supreme Court, which is impressive. Very impressive. (laughs) Um, And there was a lot of big cases he did argue, but one of his most historic victories was Brown versus the Board of Education. Mm -hmm. So, for any of our non-U.S. listeners or U.S. listeners who... Somehow, don't know. Um, <laughs> fell asleep Brown during versus... <laughs> several history classes. <laughs> yes. Um, so, Brown versus Board of Education declared that segregation in public schools was unconstitutional, and Thurgood argued that segregation created unequal schools for black students. And what really persuaded the Supreme Court was Thurgood's reliance on psychological sociological and historical data that showed the court the effects of institutionalized segregation on the self-image social worth and social progress of black children and his arguments like how well his arguments were are still studied by like constitutional law students today Mm -hmm. like it's a big case (laughs) (laughs) so In September 1961, Thurgood was nominated to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit by President John F. Kennedy, but opposition from Southern senators delayed his confirmation for several months. Then President Lyndon B. Johnson named him U.S. Solicitor General in July 1965 and officially nominated him to the Supreme Court on June 13, 1967. And his nomination was confirmed on august 30th with a 69 to 11 vote um, he was the first black judge to be in the supreme court and during his time on the supreme court he was steadfast liberal and stressed the need for equitable and just treatment of the country's minorities by the state and federal governments um, he also wrote over 150 opinions Dissenting from cases in which the court refused to hear death penalty cases. So there was multiple times that he was like, I do not agree that you're not hearing these cases. Like this is very important yeah. to hear these cases. <laughs> so Thurgood did retire in 1991 due to declining health. And he was replaced by Clarence Thomas, who would be the second black judge to serve after Thurgood. Um, and Thurgood did die on January 24th, 1993, and he is remembered by the Thurgood Marshall Institute, which is a multidisciplinary center within the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Whew.
1: This was, I mean, not to toot our own horns, but I feel like this was a great episode. Like, this was so, yeah. like, interesting, and I I really enjoyed... Doing the research for mine and also listening to you tell yours. So I hope you all liked it as well because we
0: enjoyed this a lot. (laughs) Yeah. And this will definitely be a series, probably. Mm -hmm. And we probably will open it up so that maybe we can do like the first black man or woman in medical school Mm -hmm. or to fly or, you know, different things like that because I think it's important and this is a true crime podcast, but, you know, sometimes. We all need a break from that, and we just need to hear about some amazing people. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So,
1: Courtney, I'm guessing you did not do anything this, you know,
0: <laughs>
1: you didn't accomplish anything to the level of these individuals, but what was your perk of the week? What is your perk of the week?
0: Well, my perk of the week is I was, um, you know, I was appointed to the Supreme Court this week. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> They would never let me in. Um, (laughs) no. So my prick of the week is that today actually, um, the reason we're recording at night is for my mom's birthday. I got her tickets to see mean girls, the musical. Um, so we went and had lunch and saw the musical and I didn't, I only knew one song from it. I hadn't really seen Mm -hmm. any like parts of it. Like I was just kind of going in blind. I mean, I've seen the movie obviously, Mm -hmm. but it was very, very good. And it was fun. Um, it was really nice in there. Um, they made everyone wear masks and there was just like people walking constantly, like oh, checking people for wow. masks, which was comforting, but also a little scary to just like, I always feel like I'm doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Like when I see someone walking and I'm just like, sit as still as I can. I'm <laughs> I not doing anything didn't wrong. do anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it was a very fun day and it was always nice to hang out with my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that is my perk of the week. Jacqueline, what is your perk of the
1: week? Um, that sounds super fun. Totally jealous. Um so my perk of the week is that I finally got my hair done yesterday. It has been a very long time. I was like a brunette, so we can't have that. So I am a blonde <laughs> again. So that is very happy about that. Hey, don't that. be insulting
0: brunettes,
1: okay? <laughs> Nothing against it's not it's not my color. Nothing against brunettes. Mm-hmm. I love brunettes. I like brunette on me for a while, but I was especially this like dull like my natural color that was coming in I, I was not about it but just wasn't yeah. it yeah but I'm very happy to have the blonde back and to you know get a little trim and I got some some nice professional shampoo so we'll see if that you know helps your hair out <laughs> yeah it makes everything more like luscious and you know hydrated mm-hmm. and all that fun stuff so you know that is my and I got a nice like break of not having a human being on me for four hours Mm -hmm. so that was super
0: nice too (laughs) yeah yeah i always love getting my hair done and always just so relaxing and Mm -hmm. just so like just makes you feel so good
1: yes and now i don't have to wash my hair for another like five days so you know (laughs) win-win um if you guys want to tell us about the musicals you've been seeing or if you like or don't like getting your hair done um what color you think we should dye our hair? Should Courtney
0: go blonde? That would be fun. Um, let us know. <laughs> I do miss my blonde highlights a lot.
1: After the wedding, here we go. Light After them up. After the wedding. So, yep. yeah, let us know all those things. Um, let us know if you guys have people you want us to cover for the next series of this. Mm-hmm. Definitely send those to us um, on Instagram at caffeinatedcrimespod. We are on Twitter at Pod, that's Pod. We are on Facebook at caffeinatedcrimespodcast. You can email us at caffeinatedcrimespod at gmail.com. We are on YouTube at caffeinatedcrimespodcast, and we are on TikTok at caffeinatedcrimes. And I got them all. Boom, boom, boom.
0: Did you mention Patreon? Nope. I did not get them all. (laughs) Okay. So you can also, if you have a little extra money, um, and again, it can even be $3, $5, $10, $20 is our max. Um, unless you guys want to give more, we can make more. (laughs) Um, but if you feel so inclined, if you want some extra bonus content, I think we have like 19 bonus episodes Mm -hmm. now, one coming out soon. That's going to be really good. Um, so if you want all that, um, you can go to Patreon.com slash Caffeinated um, You sign up. Some tiers, you get a pin and a sticker. Some tiers, you get a Google Hangout. Um, I think all tiers get access to our Discord channel where mm-hmm. you can chat with us and other Patreon members. You get those bonus episodes. If we release a two-part, you get it same week. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just the perks are endless, guys. Yeah. Bonus. We have a video
1: episode, and we'll hopefully do another video mm-hmm. episode soon.
0: You know. Yeah, a lot of fun stuff. So go on over there. That is Patreon.com/slash/CaffeinatedCrumbs, and we're still doing our (laughs) Apple reviews giveaway. So once we get to fifty, which I think we're like three or four away, come on guys, guys, just please, 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 please. So tired of saying this please um do i sound desperate enough um please go and review us on there if you send us a screenshot before you post it or make like your little username something that we can figure out Um, once we get to 50 we will choose one person who will get a pin a sticker and a 10 dollars gift card to the coffee shop of their choice um so please go do that and please review us on spotify as well we're not currently doing a giveaway there but You don't even have to, like, put a comment or anything. You just have to give us five stars, preferably, Mm -hmm. please. um, And that'll help us out a lot. Yes. But uh, in the meantime, go have a cup of coffee. And don't commit a crime.